All right, so Emma and Hima, welcome. It's good to see you all. Good to see you. Good to see you. Hello. So um, this is a great uh, essay, great week, uh, talking about Gayatri Spivak's Can the Subaltern Speak piece. Uh, it's a classic in critical theory for a lot of reasons. And so um, it was kind of a no-brainer for me to put it on the syllabus. But I actually had some reasons for it that I wanted to, to articulate just as a way of, of getting our conversation started. Um, aside from being just, a, I think, an important piece really at the foundations of post-colonial theory. And I'm thinking in particular about the trajectory of the course and where the course is going. <clears throat> which is we've talked about things like tradition and the relationships between tradition and the past, how that relates to questions of identity formation and so forth. But one of the things I really found find interesting about Spivak's piece and how it sort of overlaps and loops into Derrida's reading uh, from of grammatology is it gets us started in thinking about the place of absence in talking about discourse, in talking about meaning-making, in talking about tradition and history. Now, obviously, the piece is written at a particular moment, right, of thinking about the long shadow of colonialism and what it means to know self, what it means to know a culture, what it means to bring a voice to some sort of presence. And so watching Spivak in the essay work in all the ways she works, which are really manifold and, and we only begin to sketch it uh, in our class, um, I think it's really interesting that one of the key points is to take people like Marx, like Foucault, like Deleuze, and get them to sort of draw us up to the very point where a subaltern voice is articulated. But I say is articulated because it's not articulates itself, but rather that, you know, Foucault, Marx, Derrida, or not Derrida, um, Deleuze, they articulate the voice for us, right? They really get us to the point where they allow or set out the conditions under which the subaltern is allowed to speak. And then she reverses that, of course, with this notion of the native informant and subaltern studies references to start to think about how there are also these other conditions of a sort of informed elite who speak for the subaltern or set conditions under which we can hear the subaltern. And Spivak's push, of course, at the end of the essay, but it's always been there throughout, is by marking those limits of whether it's the elite and the native informant or the reach of European theory to get us to this point where the subaltern cannot speak, right? That we don't actually have the conditions for subalternity to speak. And so what we have instead is this sort of absence, not a sort of, an absolute absence built into the very structure of speaking and meaning making, whether that speaking meaning making comes from the elite sort of inside the culture or the critical theory that comes from outside. And so my longer sort of interest in this in the course, but also in my own thinking, is how do we do things with absence, right? It has this deeply deconstructive force. It sort of pulls things apart. It shows the limits of discourse. But I'm also interested in what does it open up? What also does it make possible? So, you know, that may be something we get into. But I just wanted to say that in terms of like why I wanted to put this 
really at the center, right? We're at a pivot point in the course where it's like, now we turn to questions of abjection and Kristeva, to poetry and memory of the Middle Passage and the plantation and so forth. But here's this moment where a really radical, unassimilable, un, un, unintelligible absence makes itself heard exactly by puncturing a hole in what we think is knowing, what we think is thinking. And that to me is is super fascinating and, and a radical proposal that I'm still, I have to say, years after reading it, sort of grappling with. And so, yeah, I'm curious what you all think uh, was is interesting about the essay, sort of where it took you. Absolutely. Um, I think just the way it starts with Foucault and Deleuze and the way it takes these ideas by these brilliant people and also the field of post-colonialism in itself and takes the ideas and um, talks about them, discusses them, but at the same time rejects some really powerful ongoing forces. I think that's an act of tremendous courage. And mm-hmm. um, I was quite inspired. Yeah, what is it about that rejection that you that that you think is is important? Because it's not polemical, right? It's actually an argument. But she's so snarky at times. <laughs> she's like, he imagines this is man, but this is really European man. So I think, yeah, exactly. That to be in the power dynamic, to be writing to all of those people, and yet. Um, not to directly reject those ideas, to acknowledge the force and the power in the ideas as she does with Derrida, and yet to turn them over on their head, to say that this is my unique voice. Mm-hmm. I think that's that, that that was really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think the recognition of what is being done well in these theories kind of parallels what she's doing with the theories, which I think is something that's really interesting and something that you know if we're thinking about the um parasite in bloom's um essay i think she's kind of directly rejecting that and that Mm -hmm. she's recognizing what they're saying and she can be a little snarky about her uh, ultimate rejection of it but she's not trying to kill it Mm -hmm. which i think is very important rejection not killing it um I also was really struck by the idea of absence and how absence in and of itself can kind of be its own presence, like how radical absence can be a presence and can be knowledge. Um, And it's making me think about, um, I took a class with Jason Rudy here about indigenous um, Australian literature. Hmm. And one of the major focuses of the, the course was about violence and absence and Uh what does it mean if in like the historical record there is an absence where a violence occurred so like where a massacre occurred or where Mm -hmm. um you know another form of colonial violence occurred and yeah this is just making me think differently about what silence can mean in the so-called factual account yeah, that, that silence and absence and what it does is so interesting because, you know, Spivak's example of the the self-immolating widow, right? The, the, that example is an act of violence, right? Mm-hmm. It's an act, act of, of setting oneself on fire and, and death. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't take it as this sort of, just leave it as, as you were saying, like this un unwritten thing that's a sort of abyss but it 
she won't let it be an abyss. I think sometimes for me, and I try to catch myself doing this, there's almost like a, a comfort in just calling it an, a, a silence and an abyss and like, well, we'll just never know. And that's the violence of history because it's like, we don't have to think about it. But I think when she was talking about Sati, it was like this, this sense of like, you know, the, the, the self-immolated widow, you know, refused to speak. Right. And it's almost like an act. One of the ways I think about it is like an act of epistemological aggression. It's like, I refuse to be known, but I act in the world. And that refusal to be known and to act in the world is a different kind of absence than it's lost to history. I mean, it, 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 for me, it compels me differently. I, I've searched for words to articulate that for a long time, and I'm not sure I fully have it. But I like that sense of like an aggression against knowledge and the way it marks limits and it humbles, right? Yeah, I'm thinking about that now in terms <clears throat> of our conversation about giving someone a voice versus hearing their voice. Mm -hmm. And its I don't really know what to make of that, but that idea of like, someone just shutting that down completely like just being like no i refuse to let you listen yeah something like that i, I don't know what to make of that but that was just making me think of our language around voices in the past yeah exactly right the silence is to me the silence is portrayed as empowering mm -hmm. and um the whole and the fact that the um story comes up about bhuvneshwar Bhaduri and what happened and all of that is a mode of saying, a mode of resistance through narrative that's depicted in the essay itself. So to me, it leads up from um, the silence, the opacity to how oppression is perpetrated and yet it is refused it, instead mm -hmm. of um, saying that, well, this is what happened to me and now you have given me a platform to say it. It goes, I will not say what I feel. Mm. Yeah, I, that's, you know, that's so contrary to so, so much of our, I mean, it's hard to say our, because you may say, well, that's not me or my ecosystem, but I think so much of a sort of politics of liberation really turns around this idea of like listening and giving a space to hear a voice and that refusal to speak is really, to me, just really interesting because it's, it's not obstinate it's not um it's an act of it's an act of power but how it relates to something like liberation I've, I've never been quite sure but i guess i also think i'm curious what you all think i also think it makes me wonder like why am i always going to the question of liberation why am i not going to the question of resistance which isn't always liberation sometimes it's a refusal to speak like you don't have a right to my experience yeah, there was something that I was talking to someone about in a class or outside of a class about how dangerous it is to look at, for example, like um, the historical record of like the Middle Passage mm -hmm. and to say to only be looking for the violence or the devastation in it. And it's like, that sounds kind of like contrary to what, you know, the Middle Passage was a horrible, violent, you know, it was in essence a genocide. Um, but there was something that we were, someone was talking about it with me about saying there, there's all, there are always nuggets of resistance, mm -hmm. you know, and just completely papering over 
an event and saying everything about it was horrible, everything about it was terrible, and everybody in it, you know, died or was drowned and is lost in the historical record and will never know what happened. And it's like, no, there were moments of resistance. There were moments where, you know, we can see, like, for example, like, uh, we have, like, the, the examples of, um, I don't remember if it was, like, a specific ship, but of women, black women jumping off mm-hmm. the ship, committing suicide and refusing to be enslaved. And I think you can read that in multiple different ways. And I think this goes back to the idea of, like, a binary. It's not good or bad. It can be both at the same time. It can be a horrific act of violence, but it can also be an act of resistance. And and to me, it's exactly that question coming up. Who are you to tell my story? Yeah. Who are you to decide what I experienced? And um, in connection to that, I'm thinking about um, Shine on the Titanic. Shine jumps off the Titanic. Or Shine was a black man on the Titanic. It's, it's mm. a folk tale. Um, and he swims off and he swims away and he never looks back, though people call him. Mm. And... The idea is that there is a silence, the refusal to return, the refusal to speak. And um, the idea for me is just that, that there is no one who, no one but the person themselves or the group themselves is allowed to define the experience. Mm-hmm. Or even, um, you know, what you were just saying, mm-hmm. or to even, it's it's the one who undergoes ha- reserves the right to even not define the experience, mm-hmm. right? To define, to not define. And that's where, you know, that that's interesting, the the, the swimming away from the Titanic and people call out and, and, and he doesn't return, right? To call to him to return. It does also sort of in that, sort of in that vein, it made me, after class, because the discussion in class made me, you know, walk away thinking about all kinds of things. One of the things I thought about, and I wish that we had had sort of an extra half hour, although, you know, at the end of the night, everybody's tired, but I was like, oh, it would be really interesting to go back to Morrison and the way Morrison reserves the right to the imagination to fill in the absences of slave narratives. And I love that. I think that's completely fascinating. But I have to say that this conversation that we're having right now and that we had in class about Spivak made me really wonder about the ethics of that. You know, I mean, on the one hand, you can say, well, the sla- that slave narratives are a genre and they're often written for someone, right? Dictated and written and then converted into a sentimental piece that plays the role of, of advocacy in the abolition movement and so forth. But I also wonder if like, in that one of the things that genre does well is reserve the right to speak or not speak the right to tell or not tell the story and what what do we make of like what if what if this person this enslaved person in the narrative just didn't want their story told they don't want to give you they want their story told but there's a detail there are details that you need not know right that they reserve the right to you know because the the self-immolating widow in Spivak's essay, we can tell a lot of that story. There is this tradition and it happens this way and this person, you know, this is how it unfolded and we can go by hour and minute and day and time and place. But that moment, right, the Spivak's absence is that moment of like, there is a detail there. That's like the detail of details that she does not tell us. And that's 
that's that moment of, of resistance to even the idea of resistance, right? Or the idea of complicity. We just don't know. And that, so I, I wondered about silences in slave narratives and how I might go back and rethink some of the things I previously thought about Morrison and the imagination and say, is this imagination, should the imagination reach this limit and understand that it commits epistemological violence when it oversteps that moment, when it infills what the enslaved person held back. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I know that imagination is one of those things we love set free, but the <laughs> ethics of imagination, I think, are always, always complicated for me. So I'm trotting out one of my theories here live mm -hmm. for, for you all. <laughs> but what else did you find interesting or sort of connections, either with this class or, or other classes, obviously, when you talk about Jason's course on, on indigenous literature? Yeah. Um, put a pin in imagination. <laughs> I'm still thinking through that one. Um, I was thinking about the idea of the native informant. Um, and I think this kind of connects to the question about like the ethics um, of imagination or like the ethics of who gets to fill in gaps in a story. Um, like the idea of authenticity, mm -hmm. like I think the way that she kind of just completely negates the idea of authenticity like the idea of who is the authentic voice for a group of people it's like you can't necessarily have not even you can't necessarily have you can't have sort of like the authentic voice yeah. of a people because you know naturally like this person this native informant is going to leave something untouched leave something you know in trying to say everything, they're going to leave something unsaid. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I was thinking about this also in connection with um, an essay I wrote that I think I kind of mentioned in class about um, indigenous Americans and um, in the horror genre and how there was like this whole debate in like the scholarship around um, Native Americans in the horror genre about like comparing the stereotypes to authentic Native American practices. But yeah. the whole question is like, well, what is authentic Native American practices? Yes. And like, there isn't, there isn't necessarily like all encompassing ideal that you can compare it to. And I think like in that case, and in the case of like the Native informant, maybe it's best to leave gaps open. Yeah. I'll, I'll stop there. Mm -hmm. And the idea of native, the native informant immediately takes me to Macaulay's Minute, which Spivak also talks about in, in the essay, um, which was essentially a document um, talking about the way English is used in India, etc., etc. And the idea was that the goal was a creation of men who were um, Indian in appearance, but um, um, British or white in their um, behavior, etc. And we grew up reading that, and we grew up reading that as an example of villainy, as an example of, huh. as an example of what was inflicted on us. Hmm. And um, I think that that's so. We I have always um, carried the idea of the native informant with me, but as an example of what not to be. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. and to now um, read the native uh, the spivak idea of the native informant i think it just adds to that conversation but also i am able to think of it now in a more literary circle of of um a woman of color sitting in a classroom of domi- um populated uh, dominated by white people and talking about her experiences and thinking about where those boundaries li- boundaries lie of when you're a storyteller when you're a native informant and when you're just a person talking about themselves yeah and i think one of the things that both the comments really bring out both of your comments really bring out too and this is why i likes the um <clears throat> And I know sometimes when when people want to edit down the speedback I say they leave out a lot of the Marx Foucault Deleuze stuff mm-hmm. to sort of get into the native informant piece and you know some of the other examples that she uses from India. But one of the reasons why I think it's so important to read the European thinker portion of the essay really like the first third of it um is not just because that's critical theory and critical engagement but because the thing about the nat- one of the things about the native informant is that the what you learn is not just about the native informant's particular position in relation to the subaltern right so the the native informant's elite status but also embeddedness in some element right what we talked about in class like the gramscian ideal of the organic intellectual who you know emerges organically out of this community so part of it's about the sort of structure of who exits you know the subaltern class in order to speak but also the way and I, I you know the 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 one who selects the native informant like who is a native informant somebody has to decide that and it's a two-way street right so there's a sort of how in this case in the sort of indian context is someone an, a native informant right that's the question of the elite but it's also a question for the the european reader or listener right you you know when you ask about authenticity it's like you learn about yourself like what do you imagine is an authentic mm-hmm. you know when you said like indian in appearance mm-hmm. so what is indian in appearance well that's a really interesting two way street because there's on the indian side right a certain kind of idea of of what indian in appearance is and then there is in the case you know in this particular case the british what what is their idea of the indian right and when you you know when you think about that like what is the idea of the indian that's that's a, it's like a selection process that bears in it all kinds of violence in terms of already carving up an entire world and then sort of moving sort of i guess dialectically or maybe imperially to like find that that native intellectual and i've wondered that in some ways about spivak you know cuz I've heard people criticize her it's usually just a sort of twitter kind of a side comment but you know oh she's an elite she teaches at an ivy league school she lives in the united states who is she to talk about the subaltern and i always say she never talks about the subaltern i think that's what's so interesting about the essay she just brings us up to those limits in part because she's like i'm not going to be your native informant because who's going to be the native informant for american intellectuals who are not of indian origin gatri spivak right she's you know she I, you know whatever right she wears a sari she has her name's gatri spivak she's from india educated in you know so people can fill in all those things but they're already making the selection process and i think she kind of performs her own theory in that moment of like refusing to let us into this she even says you know this is like an 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 indian woman right 
like me, right? So I know, and she sort of says, so I know up to this point, and then she just cuts us off and cuts herself off. So the kind of in interesting ethics of censorship, but also I think exposing this moment where we might be reading, anticipating her as a native informant. And what does that say about the reader who might think this is the perfect informant? Like this, this is it a school book? Mm -hmm. Macaulay talk? Um, Macaulay's Minute is... Macaulay's Minute. Yeah, it, it's a document about... Um, it was for the British. It's um, It was like a manifesto for how things uh, would proceed in the colonial rule. And it's something that we ended up reading ah, as something that was... Um, and something that was a testament to our history in our textbooks, almost everyone has read it. Um, but absolutely, that I agree with what, what you've been saying. And that's totally fascinating, by the way, that this imperial document that's mm -hmm. supposed to like, be a template for proper Indian development into a kind of brown British person or something ends up being... The counter, the example in the opposite direction in a, in a post-colonial education system. That that by itself is totally interesting. I'm sure there's a ton written on it, but I'm, all of a sudden I'm intrigued by this. But what else in terms of um, I don't know if you, Hima, if you had some other stuff that had come up that you wanted to mention, like in relation to the rest of the class or other classes, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was actually thinking a lot about Sati and um, the way that I have grown up. So uh, thinking about Sati, so Sati was definitely um, self-immolation, the practice of Sati. It was um, um, people. So one thing is that the British um, take a lot of credit for, you know, we're the one who abolished Sati. But there was Raja Ramohan Roy and multiple Indian people who fought a lot to mm -hmm. actually get Sati abolished and their names are of course not as um eaten uh, as not as repeated and not as remembered as uh, so there's definitely a credit um thing going on there which i wanted to mention mm -hmm. um but also the fact i also wanted to talk about the fact that sati um in hinduism and in certain parts of hinduism there are uh, it's it's divine so there is a goddess sati who um, and it's and she's worshipped and she's looked up to and so that whole culture and uh, and so that whole culture it's problematic in its own way, uh, but of course the idea that I'm talking about here is that only one side of it is looked at and the other side of it isn't, hmm. and the fact that it has tremendous religious significance and it uh, and there is I've been to this temple which is it's huge it's dedicated to these people and for in that narrative. She does not self-immolate. She waits for a century before um, the god is reincarnated or whatever. And she steps into the fire and she is released from the traps of, from the, traps of the human body. Mm -hmm. That is why she does it. And um, the fact that the narrative has so often been um, occupied by this space comes mm -hmm. from a largely col colonial origin. Now, that's super important. And that's that moment of like, what is, you know, the conditions un uh, under which we talk about this practice is already preformed in a certain way. And what does it then mean to reform it, right? To see it in that, that, that different register. Because all of a sudden, I mean, it goes to that, you know, the, the trope, you know, in the essay about, you know, white men saving brown women from brown men, right? That's not just, uh, like, colonial missionary work it's actually uh discourse work 
hmm. right? How we, how the conditions for the possibility of talking about it actually are. And so just that little, you know, minute, 15 seconds or whatever that you just gave completely changes discourse, right? Mm -hmm. And it changes discourse in a way that the colonial register of it is pushed out to the margins. You know, where it goes is another question, but it's a total, that's where discourse and meaning formation is so interesting in this. And I think that's really so much of her, of her push and her point is just to, to get us to see how radical thinkers, quote unquote, uh, like Deleuze and Marx and I mean, less Marx, but Deleuze and Foucault, uh, end up actually just controlling the discourse in a way that sounds exactly like colonial discourse. But what I'm thinking about is, would Spivak want me to tell you the story? Um, is this story something that I chose to tell the story? What happens now? Am I a native informant? That, that's the, that's the key here, which I'm really interested in that. How do we navigate storytelling, um, yeah. tradition and information? That's the, that I'm so glad you said that word. I mean, you know, I'm sure you all are getting sick of it in the class, but the, that tradition, you know, and who has rights to a tradition is so complicated because on the one hand, you could say, well, traditions are just traditions. You share them and it's interesting and curious. That's great if we lived in a world that had no history and present of power, right? And exploitation. But when we do, yes, what are those ethics of storytelling? I mean, maybe this is a, an answer to this sort of last sort of question I wanted to put out there and see what you all thought about. But, you know, this essay is like bad at math, but like 35 something years old. Does it seem dated to you? You know, I mean, it was like came out and this was like such a big splash when I was in college and graduate school. But, you know, when we were talking about it in class and hearing you all talk about it now, it just doesn't seemed date to date itself there are ways like when we were reading bloom it's like this is dated like who just talks about like shelly and it, it, obviously you mean you know you don't mean mary right uh, that sort of somebody mentioned that in class i thought that was actually quite brilliant but you know in what ways is this or is this not something that strikes you as dated and what would that mean i mean I'm hesitant to say that it can, it continues to apply to our time period because I feel like that's something that Spivak would be maybe a little bit against just because of her whole, the conversation around context and mm -hmm. the importance of context. So I definitely think aspects of it are still applicable today. And I think sort of like the general idea of it is still applicable, but I do think it's important to consider what she says, which is, you know, context is important. You can't apply this just sort of like universally. Like this is, mm -hmm. you know, this is a very specific theory. And the whole point is you shouldn't generalize, I feel like. Um, <coughs> yeah, I think, I also think uh, our conversation about cultural appropriation versus epistemic violence um, was really interesting and I wonder what she would say about the Kardashians wearing I forget what the name of the braids we said were but I would wonder what she would corn think rose, yeah. yeah or cornrows yeah she like, caught what did they call it what did she it was some like it was it was related to some like rapper or singer 
Yeah. I forget what it was now, but... Where's Morgan when we need her? I know. (laughs) (laughs) But just, like, stuff like that. Like, I wonder if she... If Spivak would think that this... How this would apply... Where epistemic violence would come into the conversation about cultural appropriation. Um... I mean, I, the thing that that we didn't talk about in the in the class, but talking about that particular hairstyle, mm-hmm. is you know it does. This is sort of opens up these sort of questions of difference and history and identity and so forth. But it's actually also referred cornrows are also referred to as protective style, like it's a way of protecting your hair. But of course, it's a fashion statement, right? And an appropriation and the epistemological violence in some ways. I mean, it is a fashion style too for 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 people of African origin. But it's interesting to me to also think about terms like protective style mm-hmm. and what does that mean to traffic in a protective style when that's not a thing that you need, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also thinking, it, you know, that idea of, of, of epistemic violence rather than appropriation is, you know, I mean, I already said it in class. I'll say it again. That shift of vocabulary is super interesting to me if we start to talk about those things as epistemic violence. Because that's like the difference between saying gentrification and ethnic cleansing. All of a sudden the stakes feel really high when you say epistemic violence. And that's what Spivak's after. But Spivak's example is in some ways like the way she tells it and the way we're reading it. You know, reading it in an Indian context would be very different than reading it here mm-hmm. in College Park, Maryland, in the sense of like, we're reading it in the, in the Indian context as well, but always understanding that there's this big thing called colonialism. The way that colonialism is like a whole f- like form of life that persists in all of these ways when we a- enact epistemic violence, right? That idea of, of of colonizing things right and finding that native informant who says it's okay the native informant who explains to you what it is so that you can explain it to others and you can control the discourse that is such a feature of <coughs> what we call epistar what we call cultural appropriation mm-hmm. and getting that word violence in there it just seems to me to be really key yeah i'm thinking also of like when <coughs> people um get like the pass like the n-word pass or something like that like that idea of how, how can we just make that stop sorry yeah. it's like no, seriously that's the, whole, that's the whole question where it's like who's giving you that like who's giving you that pass and they're like oh it's okay i have like oh the whole idea of like oh it's okay i have black friends or oh it's okay i have you know and it's like well why who gave you authorization and i think that goes back to the idea of authenticity like you can't have one person speak for an entire group. Like, yeah, yeah I don't and, know. And what does it mean to have the desire for a oh. native informant? You yeah. know, that's the that's that moment of, of self-inspection. Well, yeah, and that goes back to, I think Morgan was talking about, like, social capital, like the idea about how now distance from whiteness increases your social capital. So the desire for a native informant is to get you closer to that social capital. Literally going native yeah. is, a, is the ideal to the ultimate epistemic violence, really, <laughs> right? That's the pretendian, right? Yeah. But um, to what, what you asked about <clears throat> whether it's dated, um, I think we have conversations and we have debates and we argue and we critique each other. But 
one thing that firmly resists get, being obsolete is silence. Mm. Um and that is why I think that that is where I think this essay holds so much power. Um the kind of conversations we have evolve, but the refusal to have conversation Con- uh, to have a conversation and the refusal to speak is something that only grows with time rather than getting invalidated and that is why i think this essay continues to re- remain relevant that's one of the biggest ways i love that i mean you know that's you know that's derrida's innovation according to her right at the very end of the essay when she's like he opened up this idea of the supplement right that can't be said but disrupts the whole system but the supplement only works in so far as the supplement refuses speech right refuses to enter a discourse that's not its own and uh yeah i think it didn't i think it endures and and you know i've had a couple of friends when i mentioned this to them that i was teaching a kind of subaltern speaking that oh that old thing i was like like you i was just you know i'm like how, since when did when did the the refusal to speak become something dated when did the question of epistemic violence become something dated i mean i wish but i guess that's the tragedy of the world yeah. all right well i appreciate you all making time it's a cold rainy monday <laughs> but uh, you made it up to the office to talk so um yeah great thoughts i wish we could spend another couple weeks on this essay but these themes keep coming back so all right we'll take care